0: I'm thankful for a worship leader who leads us to the throne of Christ Sunday after Sunday and knocks down the podium when he has to restart a song over. more, <laughs> we love you. Uh, let's pray together. God, we just thank you for this time. Father, having gone back from our travels and uh, from spending time with our families, Lord, some of us have had uh, good, restful times. Some of us have had stressful times. Uh, and we've had to relive uh, different past histories, whatever it is, Father. God, I pray that um, people here today will be thankful. Lord, not because of their circumstances, their past, or their life, uh, but that they will be thankful because of who you are and what you do. So, Father, give us a greater reason to be thankful, and we pray this in your Son's name. Amen. 400 years of affliction and suffering... 400 years of stinging whips whistling across bare backs. 400 years of feeble bodies wallowing in mud, muck, and mire. 400 years of bowing the head and bowing one's pride to carry bricks for somebody else's buildings. 400 years of derision and death. 400 dreamless years in which the only future For one's children and grandchildren was to be a slave. And it was at the Red Sea that 400 years of bitterness came to an end as Pharaoh's mighty army lay dead on the seashore. With one fell swoop, the Lord destroyed Pharaoh's pride and arrogance and his entire army, his charioteers, his tanks of the ancient Near East, and Israel was set free. That we find the people of God in Exodus chapter 15 singing should be no surprise to us. 400 years of slavery, people all of a sudden set free. What do we expect them to do? Isn't expected, anticipated in fact, that people who have been set free from slavery would sing. That we would sing. I think as we're going to see in this chapter... It is because God, throughout every stage of redemption, sets His people free, saves His people, fights for them, that we have reason to sing His praises. In other words, we have been redeemed so that we will sing of the One who brought us out of darkness and into marvelous light. My friends, we just spent the greater part of 30 minutes, 45 minutes singing songs And to any outsider who's new to the church, it might be strange because this might be the only place where you see people actively singing to God. It's a strange occurrence when people get together, tenors and sopranos and basses, good singers, bad singers, strong voices, weak voices, get together without care, without worry, without performance and get together to sing, to make melody with their hearts to God we're going to see why today that's so important, that we as a church, as God's people, continue singing. Exodus 15 opens with these words, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. The word then reminds us that the people singing comes as a reaction to something that God has already done. In Exodus chapter 14, God saved his people. And now in Exodus chapter 15, we find the people singing to God. It's an interaction, what God has done and now what God's people do. God's salvation, the people's song, and is the right response considering the redemption that they had just seen worked out in a marvelous, miraculous way, is unlikely. If you just imagine, standing on that seashore that day, it is unlikely that any Israelite, any Hebrew was silent. Can you imagine anyone in that great throng of people? 600,000 men and more standing on the seashore. Can you imagine anyone standing by and saying, I don't like to sing. The tune's not to my liking. This isn't like the slave hymns that we used to sing back in Egypt. Oh, Miriam's leading with the tambourine? What does she think? We're charismatic? Can you imagine anyone that day doing that? Well, of course not. Everyone, young and old, weak voice, strong voice. People of God all coming together. Men and women, children. Singing, raising up their voices to the Lord. Because of the great redemption that God had just brought them. What a great lesson for us as Christians. Because we know the redemption of Christ, we have more reason to sing than they. Because we know the cross, because we know Jesus, because we know the fulfillment of the Red Sea. The Red Sea being just a foreshadow of what's to come. Because we know Jesus to whom all things point, we have reason to sing with more joy, more volume, more passion, free from care. We have more reason to dance. We have more reason to make a joyful noise to the Lord. So how fitting is it that we turn now to the Song of the Sea, Exodus 15, to learn how to be a singing people of God? It's absolutely fitting. Because the Song of the Sea that we see in Exodus 15 is ultimately the song that victorious believers will sing on the last day. We'll get there in just a moment to show how this happens. Now, many have studied the song. It's a uh, it's kind of a shapeless song in the sense of there have been tons of structures offered for it. Some people divide it into two parts. Some people divide it into four stanzas. Some people even divide it into seven stanzas. As for me, as you can tell from your notes, we're going to look at it in three stanzas. And the reason why we're going to look at it based on this structure is because we're looking at the content of which each stanza has to say about God. Verses 1 through 3 sing about who God is. Verses 4 through 12 sing about what God has done. And then verses 13 through 18 sing about what God will do. So we have the first stanza, God's character. Second stanza, God's salvation. And then third stanza, God's sanctuary. It is by reading this song with a three stanzas structure that we, as the redeemed people of God bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, are given motivation for our own singing to the Lord. Why should we heed commands of scripture such as that found in Ephesians 5.19 which says that we should address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart? Why should we obey the command found in Colossians 3.16, which instructs us to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart? Singing is not an option for the people of God. It's a command. Singing is not something we do when we feel like it. It's a command. Singing is not something we do when we're in the right atmosphere. It is a response to the redemption that God has given us. And the reason why we must obey these things, we will find out from the Song of the Sea, is because we have motivation to. We sing, like the Israelites, to God because of who He is, because of what He has done, and because of what He will do. As to who He is, He's our warrior who fights for us. In every step of the way, fighting against enemies, Fighting against sin, Satan and the world, fighting against death itself and anyone who dares bow the chest at God's people. we sing because of what he has done, namely he has worked his great salvation. Redemption has been bought for God's people. but ultimately we also sing because of what God will do because the story's not over yet, and God's people, saved as they may be, have not yet reached their final destination which is in the dwelling place of God. Back into Eden, back into the place of his blessing and presence. So, because this is our song and this will continue to be our song, I think it's worthwhile that we look at each stanza carefully and get to know this song. Get comfortable with it. If you want to know what the worship set is in heaven, this song's on the list. And so we might as well get to know the song now. The first stanza of the psalm begins. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Now, oftentimes you go to psalms, you go to the hymns. The very first words of psalms typically set the foundation for what's to be seen in the rest of the song. And that's true here. This entire psalm, this hymn that is sung on the seashore is built on the fact that God has triumphed. God is a victorious God. He's not a losing God. He's not a God who is barely scraped out of victory. He is God victorious and triumphant. And that is why the people sing. God was not wrenching his hands at the Red Sea, wondering what the outcome may be. God was not working with perhaps, or maybes, or mightbes. God worked a great victory. In fact, if you look at it in Hebrew, it actually says that it was a triumph, meaning triumph. That's what it means by gloriously triumph. It was a triumph that triumphed. was a triumph of triumphs. That left absolutely no question as to who was the victor. The great Egyptian force that had shaken the very hearts and souls and minds of the Israelites, this great I am that they follow, just simply picks them up and throws them into the sea. 600 chariots and more simply picks them up with one right hand and tosses them into the sea. Greatest nation of the earth brought to the depths of an ocean. No matter how strong anyone might be, no matter how strong the enemies might seem, no one can stand before the Lord God Almighty. It's also important to see the personal pronouns that are used throughout the first three verses. My friends, when we sing to God, we don't just sing to some dreamful object in the sky. We sing to a personal God. We sing to our God. We sing to my God. Yahweh is my strength, my song, My salvation. He is called my God and my father's God. Echoing the fact that he is the covenant God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The fact that they could call him my God reveals that they have a personal relationship with God. To a worshipping Israelite that day, Yahweh was not just one of the gods. Yahweh was not just some substance floating around in space. Yahweh was my God. Now, this echoes a promise that we find repeated throughout the entire Old Testament. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. It was this that God had promised in Exodus chapter 6, verse 7, and is this promise that God continues to keep all the way to the end. Now consider how truly remarkable this is. The great transcendent God who humbled the greatest superpower on earth humbles himself to be called. My God. He owns it all. He says it over and over. He says to Pharaoh, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And yet, he who owns all things allows his people to call him mine. The God who owns the universe is owned by his own people. It's an amazing fact of God's greatness and God's compassion. The God who spoke the sun, the moon, the stars into existence. The God whose hand carved the oceans and formed the mountains. That great God that has created the top of Mount Everest is humbled enough to call himself, to allow you to call him yours. He is my God, is my God, my salvation personally. My friends, do we feel the weight of that? We feel the weight of that. Imagine being the son of some great king who is over all the earth, humbles nations and kings from every nation come and bow before him and call him your reverence and your majesty, your highness. And yet you can come to him and say, My father, my dad, my God. My friends, it's a beautiful truth about God's compassion for His people. He is so high above us. He does not have to be owned by us at all. We could have a relationship with Him just like the Muslims do, where we're so separate from Him. We can never be friends. We can never be sons, but we could be servants. But as it is, the God of the Bible allows us into a personal relationship and says yes you may call me my God yes you may call me yours I am his and he is mine I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine unless we sing knowing not only do we belong to him but he also belongs to us unless we sing with that great motivation we won't sing rightfully We won't sing joyfully. We sing because the great God of the universe has allowed us to call him ours. The first stanza ends with a declaration that will continue to have lasting significance in the life of God's people. Verse 3 says, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Importantly, this last verse, this this last uh, line of the stanza that's getting ready to break into the second and the third stanza, set the pavement. God has is a man of war always. God fights for his people. God always does. He fought for his people, past tense, at the Red Sea, as it says in the second stanza. And then in the third stanza, it will say that God will continue to fight for his people as he goes into the promised land. The truth that the Lord is a man of war remains true throughout all the ages, even now. God fought. We read about it in the Scriptures, how God fought for His people, and yet He continues to fight for us. The Lord is your warrior. Now, of course, it's connected with His covenant promises. Notice how that statement, the Lord is a man of war... It's soon followed by God's covenant name. The Lord, Yahweh, is his name. He fights for us, not so that we will have prosperity in the world. Neither does he fight for us so that we will become popular, healthy, well-clad. He doesn't fight for us so that we can somehow avoid poverty. He fights for us because his promises are worth fighting for. He fights for us not so that we might have our best lives now and so that we might live now free from suffering. He fights for us because He actually believes His promises will lead to our good and His glory. God fights for us because He must bring His promises to fruition because He is a God who does not lie, who does not cheat and does not deceive. He is the God who keeps His word always. And with that, the first stanza ends. Now, whereas the first stanza that we saw focused on God's character, the second stanza will focus on God's salvation for his people. More precisely, the second stanza carols the final conclusion of the war between Yahweh and Pharaoh. In many ways, the first 15 chapters is like a contest between the gods, right? We see Pharaoh standing up, He stands up with the Egyptian gods and they bow their chests at God and they say things like, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And we see what comes from that. Pharaoh bows his chest, God punches him to the gut, and Pharaoh sinks to the bottom of the sea. Who's God? Who's the true divine king? Who's the one that has claims over not only the Hebrews, but also over the Red Sea and over Egypt itself and over every nation of the earth? It's not Pharaoh. It's God. Verses 4-12 through 12 tell of the hammer stroke that came smashing down on Pharaoh's arrogant head. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword and my hand shall destroy them. You blew your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Now reading through the lyrics of the song of the second stanza becomes absolutely clear. Two things become absolutely clear. Number one, it is Yahweh who won the victory. I've said this a lot as we study through chapter 14, and I'll say it a lot as we study through chapter 15, but it's something that we constantly forget. So as repetitive as it might sound, it is a repetition that does you good to hear. Yahweh is the one who wins the victory. Yahweh is the one who works. Yahweh is the one who redeems. He cast Pharaoh into the sea. He. It was his right hand that was glorious in power, And that shattered the enemies. It was his majesty that overthrew his adversaries. And it was his fury that defeated them. It was his nostrils that caused the sea to stand up in a heap. It was his wind that caused the sea to cover the Egyptian. No Israelite sword. No spear. No man-made strategy won the victory at the sea. It was God and God alone. God's people are helpless to bring the victory to themselves. This is no less true for us. It was no human cunning that defeated our sin and crushed Satan. What human mind could have thought of the victory of sending a Messiah who would die to kill death? What human mind could have thought of the majesty of a king being humbled to a slave, to die a slave's death, and to be risen again, to be exalted as king once more? Who would have thought that the solution to God's wrath and His justice and our rebellion would be that all of His wrath and justice be poured on the head of His Son so that we might have forgiveness from God? It was not us. It was His cross. His blood. His broken body. His death. And His resurrection that saved us. Great is Yahweh. Great is the I Am. Great is He who was and is and is to come forevermore. Great is He who won the victory. Not great as us. But great is He. Second. We see that God completely, conclusively, decisively destroyed his enemies. The flood covered them. They sank like a stone, like lead in the water. They were shattered. The word shattered kind of indicates millions of pieces going out everywhere. They were overthrown and consumed, absolutely swallowed up by the Lord's victory. The point of these Israelite lyrics is that God won a definitive victory over Egypt. Not one Egyptian who entered into the sea came out alive that day. Not one Egyptian stood as an enmity and hostility against Israel ever again from this moment on. God won. It was a complete victory. My friends, when God wins a victory, it is a victory. It's not like the OU game this last week, where the announcer's just going, well, looky here, who's winning? No, this is complete victory, complete destruction, complete consummation. God definitively wins. His judgment crushes, shatters. Now, considering the fact that God, when he wins, he wins unquestionably. I think the last line of this stanza makes absolute sense. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. Pharaoh, the god of Egypt, had arrogantly challenged Yahweh, and God, the creator of all, Showed who was the real Lord, who was the real God. There's no one like Him. He's unique. He's majestic. He's supreme in holiness and in glory and in power. No one can do the works that He does. It's just like Hannah saying in First Samuel two: "There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides You. There is no rock like our God." So my friends, if you're if you're here today and you're just asking, how in the world can we say that God of the Bible, that the God of the Bible is God, when there's so many other gods that claim deity and kingship and the throne of the universe, and the Bible answers and says, just look at what he has done. What other God has ever, ever done anything like this? I can tell you for one thing, there is no other God in all the religions of man that claims to have absolute power, absolute sovereignty, absolute supremacy, and yet who condescends enough to be a friend, father, and savior of his people. The gods are either finite and friendly or transcendent and distant. But Yahweh... He's overall, And he's with every single one of his people. He's the only God like that. You'll not find anyone else like that. Who is like him among the gods? Who is like him that can win victories like this? Who is like him who with one hand can throw the mighty armies of Pharaoh into the sea? You see that right hand... And it's sung here at the Red Sea, but it continues to be an encouragement to us as Christians today. We're getting into the Advent season. And if you go back and read with your family, Luke chapter one and two, which I hope you'll do, you'll, you'll see three songs. Um, one of them is the, as Mary's Magnificat, which is her song that she sings after receiving the message from the angel that the Messiah is coming. And listen to what she says in true Exodus fashion. She proclaims the name of God. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. What do you think she's thinking of when she thinks of the outstretched arm of God? That's supercharged language in scripture. That goes all the way back to the Red Sea. So what Mary's looking at is she's looking at this time when God crushed the Egyptians at the Red Sea and now sees that with the coming of the Messiah, God's mighty arm will finally crush all the enemies of God's people. Not just human kings, but sin, Satan, the greatest tyrant of all, and death itself. God's complete victory at the Red Sea paves way for his perfect victory in Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone needs motivation to sing to God, they need only consider what God has done. And that is why we should remember how God has saved us from our enemies. My friends, we should be Christians that sing of the cross. We should be Christians that sing of the time that Jesus died. We don't move beyond that. We should sing of nails and crown of thorns and blood and broken body and betrayal. Spear in the side. Holes in the flesh. A tomb. And then we should sing about the resurrection. We don't move beyond that. Because it is with his mighty right hand at the cross that God shatters those who stand against us. Now we move on to stanza three. Stanza 1, focused on God's character, who He is. Stanza 2, focused on God's salvation, what He has done. And now we come to the conclusion of the song, stanza 3, which will focus on God's sanctuary and what He will do. The Song of the Sea demonstrates that the Red Sea was not the goal of the Exodus. It was merely a step toward their real destination. God indeed had brought the people out of Egypt, But his goal was not just to bring them out of Egypt. His goal is to bring them out of Egypt and into his presence. He delivers them so that they will dwell with him. This is the primary goal and tell us of all of life. The primary goal and destination of all that matters is that we would dwell in God's peaceful presence. It's just beautiful. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to unfold just some of the language here for you so you can see just how rich this actually is in the song. Verse 13 speaks with prophetic confidence. This hasn't happened yet. What they're about to sing hasn't happened yet. They're not in the promised land yet. They're not in the place where God promised to give them yet. But yet they have seen God work in such a mighty way that it's as good as done. They've seen God defeat Pharaoh... And therefore, they know no one will hinder them. So they might as well sing of God's future grace as if it's already come. Here's what it says in verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. And what's interesting about the word abode here is that in Hebrew, it can also mean a place of grazing or a place of rest. The word pops up in another place. In Psalm 23, verse 2. He makes me to lie down in what? Green pastures. Same word. Basically, this is the Exodus version of Psalm 23. God is not just a mighty warrior who fights for his people. He's the shepherd who leads his people into green pastures where they will find rest and peace. They're literally standing beside still waters as the Red Sea now calms. Knowing that they're going into green pastures of the Lord, their shepherd. And just as it was God himself who saved Israel, it would be God himself who brings them into his presence, into his sanctuary. Thus not only did the Red Sea redemption mean the defeat of Egypt, it also foreshadowed the future defeat of the Canaanites. Listen to what they say. The peoples have heard. They tremble. It was so widespread that they mentioned that the inhabitants of Philistia, the chiefs of Edom, the leaders of Moab, and the people of Canaan, they melt away. Where do you hear that again? You hear it when they come to Jericho. And the Canaanite prostitute Rahab says to the Israelites as a testimony, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, that all the inhabitants of the land, what? Melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. God's great victory at the Red Sea paves the way for God's victory in the promised land. God melted the Egyptians here. And so the Canaanites will melt before the Israelites as they march in. And what's beautiful about that is that God promises us the same. He wins the victory so that we can have the victory. He wins the victory so that we will be victorious. Is it any mistake at all... That it is the Son of the Woman, it is Christ at the cross, who crushed the head of the serpent. And yet it is also said of us that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. My friends, we're not victorious because we're victorious, we're victorious because He is victorious. We're not victorious because we win. We're not victorious because we're strong. We're not victorious because we're smart. We're not victorious because we're rich. We're not victorious because we're well equipped. We're not victorious because we own a lot. We are victorious because we have God who wins the victory. That is why we are victorious. Our enemies melt away at the cross, and therefore our enemies melt away before us Death was defeated at the cross, and therefore death itself fears us, for we are more than conquerors. When Israel finally came to the land, terror and dread will cause the inhabitants to freeze like stone, till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by by whom you uh, pass by whom you have purchased. Now notice how the psalm speaks. Of Israel's enemies as if they were the waters of the Red Sea. God blew his wind and the water stood still. In a heap. Until the people passed by. And what's going to happen again? The inhabitants of Canaan are going to stand still like stone. Until the people pass through. What God did at the Red Sea is going to do again. And again. And again. The God who wields the power over the sea and over Egypt. Is the God who wields the power over every nation. There is no... Enemy that does not freeze like a deer in the headlight before the great I am. Not one. Death itself, the greatest enemy that we have ever had, trembles and dies in the presence of God. Death itself is terrified, has a heart attack. When the Son of Man splits stone and comes walking out of the grave and promises that one day all of God's people will do the same. And in the end, God's people will arrive at their destination. He will plant them on his own mountain. The place he has ordained as his abode or his, his dwelling it will be, according to the song, a place that is God's sanctuary, which his own hands have established. It's a sanctuary, a dwelling place that God himself has made. Now, this should sound familiar. And where else in scripture do we read of a sanctuary? A garden-like place that where people are planted. It reminds us of trees and mountains. A place where we dwell with God. A place made with God's own hands. What other place do we think of when we hear those words? A sanctuary established by God's own hands. I hope you think of Eden. Because that's exactly what the goal is. The telos is for God to bring his people back to an Eden-like place. A place where they will dwell in his sanctuary and that he will be their shepherd and warrior king. And it's with that, having declared the fact that God will indeed bring his people into his presence, that the song ends with the most perfect words it ever could. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Just think of it. Meditations of God's character, God's salvation that he has won over the Egyptians, God's coming sanctuary that, that he will dwell with his people, leads them to this one phrase, the Lord will reign forever and ever. He is the sovereign Lord of the ages and he will never be the He reigns as God the warrior, God the shepherd, God the one who dwells with his people. He reigns as God of the nations and he will reign forever and ever to his own praise and glory. Verses 19-21 through 21 go on to describe Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron. She takes up the tambourine and dances with all the women. It's not just Moses who sang. It wasn't just choir leaders. Moses isn't just the worship pastor and he's the only one everybody's listening to. Um, it's not a, a worship band or anything like that. It is men, women, Moses, Miriam, from greatest to the small, everyone's joining in. Everybody that, all the scholars that look at this wonder why Miriam at this point is brought back into the story. Why is she mentioned as, as starting the song? And, and there's lots of theories about this and you can read about them on your own, but here's what I think. I think this is the author's subtle way of showing that the song went on. It's almost as if Miriam started it all over again. She's got done singing this amazing song, theologically rich, Praising God and Miriam, being overwhelmed with joy, just says, let's do it again. We're going to have an encore. We're going to do more. Can you imagine if God's people could be so joyful that we're not looking at our watches to see what time the lunch buffet starts, but we're so overwhelmed by a song that we just start chanting again, 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 and then we break out in the song all over again. Because here's the reality of God's people. We sing, and we don't stop singing. And we keep singing, and we keep singing throughout the ages. One thing is true. God's people have always been a singing people. And indeed, the song goes on. The song of the sea, as I told you before, will be the very song that you and I and the saints of God will sing on the last day. If you would turn in your Bibles to Revelation 15, you find a great crowd of victorious saints. They have won through tribulation. They have won through battle. They have won through Antichrist, through beast, through Satan, through serpent. And they're standing there in victory beside a sea of glass with harps in their hand. Now a sea of glass should cast our minds back to the Red Sea. God has just brought them through. They're safe. He saved them. And then look at what it says in verses 3 through 4. What do Christians, believers in Christ, who are saved on the last day, sing? And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God and of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name. For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts will be revealed. On the one hand, it's the song that we've sung throughout all the ages. And yet, on the other hand, it's a brand new song. That we sing anew and afresh. Isn't that great? In heaven, that when the worship set gets going, nobody complains that we sing the same songs over and over again. I'll be glad when those emails are over. No one complains that we sing again of the cross. No one complains that we sing again of God's salvation, or the great I am. No one complains that we again played the harps. (laughs) Or it's the same people standing around all the time singing. It's just a joyful, joyful song. It goes on and on and on. It's like it's being sung afresh every time. Almost like it's the first time that we sing it. Just imagine how glorious that would be. Sing a song. Finish. Sing a new one. Sing it again. Sing it again. Going about in the new heavens and new earth, looking at the trees, seeing the Lamb of God, the King of all the nations, sitting on His throne, plucking leaves off the tree of life, healing the nations, offering fruit, That we may eat and be filled. For the king himself to begin humming the bar. And then for God's people just to recognize the melody. And we sing with our king. How great will that be? Great is thy faithfulness. Great I am. Songs that move the generations and declare God's glory. Now, we're not quite done. We have just a few minutes left. I don't want to leave before we consider knowing now that this is our song. Exodus 15 doesn't just belong to the Exodus Israelites. This is your song. This is your past. This is your present. And this is your future. So knowing that this is our song, what should we do? First, We must continually reflect on what God has already done. I love it when people talk about what God did throughout their week. People come to church and they want to talk about a lot of things. We come and it's, for many of us, our social moments. It's our times to talk about sports and scores. And it's our time to talk about life and aches and pains and... It's time to talk about our car and how well it's running and our house. And those are all great and good. We should. That's part of being friends. But there's one thing that should never escape our conversations. What has God done? What has God done in your life? He has worked powerfully in the cross, so everybody has that in common. We can all speak about how God saved us. If we believe in Jesus Christ, God has done something for us. And that's not to mention all the smaller victories that he continues to work in our life. God has given me more patience this week. God has given me more healing this week. God has given me more satisfaction this week. God has made me aware that yes, though past be painful, my future is bright because he is the God who has saved me. That's one thing that should never escape. The melody of our mouths is what God has done. Evidences of grace. Is there anyone in here that would be bold and brash enough to say, God has done nothing this week? Because the reality is, if any of us could be brash enough to say that, we'd be admitting our own blindness. Reflect on what God has done. Think about it. Think about your life. Think about the grace. Think about the moments that you've seen God so powerfully work. Those moments that you just look back and you know unquestionably it was God. How did I have the grace to say that at that moment? How did I have the grace to stick with my husband even when he was completely being a jerk? How do I have the grace to be a friend to that unfriendly person? How do I have the grace to love the unlovely? How do I have the grace to even open up my scriptures in the morning and bask in the warm light of God's word? Second, we must look forward to what God will do. In our world of suffering and pain, it is easy to forget that life is heading towards a goal, towards a destination, a telos. No, life is not heading toward your best, uh, job. Life is not heading toward you being the top salesman, the top actor, the top teacher, the top whatever you do. You might get there, you might be able to say, I am the best in my field, and you will still be completely unsatisfied because you'll realize that is nothing more than a side pit stop and maybe even a distraction. It's not, Heading towards a comfy, extravagant life of leisure or a comfy 401k or the ability to go and see beautiful places anywhere that you want to go. That's not where life is heading. It's not careening towards retirement where you'll finally make it. It's not heading towards big houses, nice cars, no payments, no debt. Life is not heading to any one of these self-centered dreams that we have. Life is heading to a sanctuary. Life is heading to green pastures. I love the idea of green pastures. We live in O'Villa, Texas, and we see a lot of green pastures around here. And something about green pastures is that we find there's no houses, no cars, no TVs, no ESPN channels. No banks. It's just green pastures. I think the metaphor is ironic that God's bringing us to green pastures because we're going to find out in the end that the tell us of all of life is being in a field just with Him, having nothing else but grass and the Lord God Almighty. Isn't that nice? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside still waters and brings me to green pastures. That is the goal of life. Reflect about where you're heading. Whatever success you might have right now, enjoy the success. Thank God for it. Love the success. It's great. But know that it has never been your goal. Whatever suffering you may be in, it may be a long time of suffering. It may be an entire chapter filled with suffering. It may be half of your life of suffering. It might be years of suffering, but it will not be so forever. You are going to come out and God will bring you to his green pastures. It may not be in this life and it probably won't be in this life, but God is bringing you to himself. Let that encourage your sufferings, and let that diminish your successes. May your successes be paler. May your sufferings be less heavy, because you know that God is the God who dwells with His people. Finally, I'm going to get real pointed here. You must sing. Everybody wants to know every week, just tell me what to do. What application am I going to get from this? Here it is. Sing. Scripture says little about pitcher melody. But it does say to make a melody with our hearts. Scripture says little about what level the volume should be set at and how all the equalizers should work so that every, every voice and every person up here on stage can can know just right at where they're supposed to sing and where should the bass come in and the guitar come in and when should we restart a song in the middle of it. It says little about those things, but it does say make a joyful noise. I can guarantee you this, Scripture definitely says that worship is not about being entertained. Worship is about being engaged. Do you see that? People often choose their churches based on the worship. How did it make them feel? How did it move me along? Was it nice to my ears? And they never opened their mouths. And they realize that those lures that they're chasing after are actually lead them, leading them away from their duty and command of Scripture, which is to sing. The church that has the weakest in technique is probably the best. You want to know why? Because the primary instruments of heaven are our voices. What makes up the praise team? You do. What makes up the choir? You do. Who are the worship leaders? You are. It's not about our performance, it's about the person we sing about. It's not about our amu- amusement. Well, I really love that guitar riff that he ripped into. That drum solo was great. It's not about amusement. It's about adoration. My friends, you are not to be sung to. How lazy is it that we think, you got to sing to me? You're not to be sung to. You're to sing I don't have a good voice. So Moses was a stutterer and he's the one that kicked off the song. I don't I don't like our style of worship. Okay, but do you like the lyrics? I can't tell you how many times I've gotten emails from people saying, I don't know I can't stand that song, I can't stand this, I just don't like this. I'm like, okay, let me just write out some of the lyrics and then you email me back tomorrow after meditating on the lyrics and you tell me if you still don't like it. It's not about your style, not about your preferences. It's about what you sing and who you sing it to and why you sing it. You get that? What you sing. Lyrics matter more than anything else. There's a reason why we, this song isn't recorded in music. We just have the lyrics. It's about who we sing to. We don't sing to ourselves, right? Hopefully not. You can do that in your car. And why we sing. That's what worship's about. And as long as the church is centered on good gospel-centered lyrics that sing to God, for God, and about God, and that we sing more songs that tell us about God and who God is and what God has done and what God will do, than we sing about how God makes us feel. And if we sing because we know that we should, And we sing because we know that we are thankful. And we sing because we know that God is worthy as infinitely better than having the best praise team we could ever have. We're about to sing the great I am. Moy originally had a set planned and I just told him, I said, this is our last sermon in Exodus for the year. (laughs) We're going to sing the great I am. And it's going to get loud, and it should get loud. We have more reason to sing louder than the Israelites did. We should clap. If you want to sway, you can sway. If you want to raise your hand, that's great. Nothing mystical or weird is going to happen with it. But every voice should sing. Let's pray. Father God, having read the song of a past, we also read our song as in our present and in our future. And so, Father, now as we come to worship again, Father, I pray that we will not be entertained or amused, but that we'll be engaged in adoring you. So, Father, now I pray that you give strength by your Holy Spirit to every mouth in this place, regardless of whatever sound may come out, may it be joyful, Regardless of whatever melody might be struck, let it be from our hearts. Regardless of whatever style that we have, let it be in sincerity. So, Father, here's our gift of worship to you. A sacrifice of praise. Because you, our God, have defeated our enemies and are leading us to your green pastures. And so we sing. Father God, we pray for the songs that will be sung over Mila this week as her grandparents and as her parents sing her sweet lyrics and melodies, Father God, I pray that you give her the image of you as her good shepherd, who's leading even her. Small as she may be, frail as a lamb as she may be, Father, you care even about your smallest sheep. And Father, we long for the day that Myla will open up her eyes and will join in the song with us. We know that will happen. There's no if ands, or buts about that. Mila will sing. And she will sing to you. And we thank you for that. Regardless of when it happens, Father, we give you our trust and our faith. And we pray this in your Son's name, who is worthy of all praise and worship. Amen.